0: Well, you can turn to 1st John chapter 2 beginning in verse 28. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1022. And we will be continuing our series in 1st John, and we're looking at that theme this morning of looking back and looking forward. Well, I think most of us can relate to this idea of looking back and looking forward in terms of our earthly years. When we're young, like the kids who are just up here, almost all of our life is in front of us. Almost all of our life is looking forward. Little kids don't have much to look back on, and they probably don't remember much. Uh, there's not much to, to remember and look back upon. When we reach middle age... Uh, there's a mix of looking back, maybe with some joy, maybe with some regret, and then looking forward, maybe with a mix of anticipation for what is to come, or maybe uncertainty about what the future holds. When we get into our our older years there 's a lot of looking back, most of our life is looking back, and the looking forward is. Looking forward on a on a window of our days that is beginning to to close and beginning to narrow. Perhaps that creates a new urgency, or perhaps it creates a deeper level of passivity. Whatever stage of life we're in, I think we tend to center our perspective on our own lives, on our own experiences. The highs and the lows, the victories and the defeats that we have experienced. When we're in school, we might evaluate our life based on the school year, right? At the end of the year, we look back and we kind of say how things went. And then we look forward to the year to come. Once school is done, which for some of you, I know that feels like an eternity. But trust me, the day will come when, when that happens. But once school is done, maybe we start to use the new year as that point that we look back and we look forward. We look back on the calendar year that was and we look forward to the calendar year that is coming. When I've done some premarital counseling in the past, I like to help couples by looking back and looking forward. Looking back at their past and how two people coming from two different backgrounds, two different lives, when they come together, how is your past going to impact your future? How is your past going to shape your expectations of what is to come in the future? And I think that can be a very helpful tool, and I've seen the benefits of that. But this type of analysis, whether it's using the school year, whether it's using the actual physical calendar, or whether it's looking at our lives as two people come together, This type of analysis can't just happen independently apart from the truths of the gospel. So I want to ask, what if the centering point is not our own personal experiences? What if the centering point is something outside of us? What if we've been looking at it all wrong? We're going to see something in this passage today. John is going to center and ground this entire section on the reality of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So I want us to wrestle with this question this morning. How does looking back at Jesus' first coming and looking forward to his second coming inform the way that we live the Christian life? Let me say that again. How does looking back at Jesus' first coming And looking forward to his second coming, inform the way that we live the Christian life. And you'll see that reflected in the outline that you have there. in the two parts that we're going to break that down into. Just a brief context, a little bit of where we've been. Again, if you have this handout, this will be helpful. Uh, John kind of breaks the letter down into two halves. The first half is that God is light. The second half is that God is love and we are in the midpoint of this series we're on the seventh seventh message out of 13 so we're right in the middle and this today this passage is going to be a transition between these two sections that god is light and god is love if you look there in the upper right hand corner again john's writing is not linear he doesn't write in the kind of in the way that like paul would write he uses this method called amplification where he has a lot of repetition, and that can be sometimes hard for us to follow, especially in our Western way that we've been trained to think in a much more linear way. John uses a lot of contrasts. We've seen a lot of those contrasts, and we're going to see a lot of contrasts here in this passage this morning. And then if, if you recall on the back of that sheet, uh, the, the three tests that John applies. The theological test related to truth. Do we believe? Do we believe what is true? The moral test related to righteousness, do we obey? Do we do what God tells us to do? And then the third test, the social test, which is related to love, do we love one another? So we're going to see a lot of these contrasts. We're going to see the moral test in this passage. And then at the very end, we'll see the social test begin to be applied, which is going to kind of lead us into the second half of the book, talking about God is love. So hopefully that's a little helpful context as we dig into our passage this morning let's go to the passage let's go to god 's word first John chapter two twenty eight through three ten and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning before you. We come before your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to your people, that you would reveal to us wondrous things out of your law. That our hearts would be changed, that we would look forward in hope, that we would look back in confidence in what Christ has done for us. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Give us faith to trust you and walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first section, if you're following along there on the outline, is the grounds for our confidence and hope. Looking forward. And it should be 228 to 33. The grounds for our confidence and hope. John begins by reminding us of our identity and our calling. He calls us little children And then the calling is to abide in him. I want you to pay attention to these things throughout. Something that we talk about a lot here at Livingstone. We must know who we are before we try to do what we are called to do. In other words, our identity must inform our calling. The calling is to abide in him. This is the first of three imperatives, three commands that John is going to use in this passage. And he says here, he follows up verse 27 just before this that we ended with last week. Just as it it has taught you, abide in him. He ends with that imperative and now he begins this section with repeating that. Little children, abide in him. Why, John? Why does he repeat this again? He gives the reason, so that that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John grounds this in Jesus appearing, his future appearing. He looks forward to the second coming. Abide in him so that when he comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame. This is the first of the stark contrasts that John is going to make. This difference between having confidence at Christ's coming and shrinking back in shame at his coming. And I think we need to rescue these concepts from the trappings of our current cultural moment. John is not talking here about self-confidence. He's not talking about looking inward and saying, you just got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that you're doing enough so that when Jesus comes, you can stand confidently. He's talking about Christ confidence. He's talking about being confident of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. And the reminder is that if we are abiding in Him, then there is no shame to be experienced when He returns because we can stand confidently before Him because of the grace and the forgiveness. That he has secured for us. So he grounds it first. In Jesus. Second coming. Then our confidence is grounded in. The new birth. In verse 29. He says if you know that he is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness. Has been born. Of him. And we're going to come back to this. A little bit towards the end. This idea of. The second birth. The new birth. We come to our next imperative. Our next command in this section. John says, see. This is a command here. See or behold. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This seems like a strange command. Obviously it's not literal. You can't see love, right? You can't. See the love of your spouse. You can see demonstrations of it. But you can't literally see love. You can't see the love of your parents. You can't see the love of your children. But John says to see, to behold. To look with the eyes of faith. To see what God has done. To call us his own. To give us his love. This idea of remembering Remember who you are and remember what God has done for you. See it. Look to him. And it has here this sense of of looking back. See the father's love for us as his children. Let his love be the grounds of your confidence before him. And let his love cause you to stand fast in the face of the opposition of this world He follows that up with, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We've been emphasizing this over and over here that John is not just making things up here in this letter. These are things that he heard from Jesus himself. I've been encouraging you to spend some time reading John's gospel, especially chapters 14 to 17. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, Jesus spoke on this matter of the world not knowing us. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And John here is speaking to, towards the opponents, those who do, do not know the believers, he's saying, because they do not know the Father, they also do not know us. John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says about the disciples and about us, I have given them your word, he praises to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then in 1 John three thirteen, which we're going to see next week, John says... Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world hated Jesus first. The crowds that cried out, Hosanna, five days later cried out, crucify him. Then John goes on to talk about our already and not yet hope and motivation for obedience. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The already is that we are God's children now. And the not yet is that what we will be has not yet appeared. Think about the one who is writing this. Think about who is Encouraging us. This is John, the beloved disciple who saw Jesus resurrected with his own eyes. He experienced firsthand in the flesh the hope of what is to come. Yet he still looks forward and he points us forward to the future hope that is coming when Jesus returns again. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. There will be a seeing of Christ that not even John and the disciples saw. They got a glimpse of it. But they did not get the full picture. Imagine you're going to go climb Mount Everest. You go to the Himalayas. You get there at the base camp. You're preparing to go climb Mount the mountain, and you write a letter back home to a friend. Yes, young people, people still write letters these days. You write a letter to a friend who is planning a future trip and you say, wait till you see it. Wait till you get here. Wait until you see it. And you haven't even begun to climb the mountain yet. You're just overwhelmed at the experience. You're overwhelmed of what you've already seen. And then, if you get to the top, you still haven't seen everything. You still haven't seen all that there is to see. That's what's going on with John here. He says, I've, I've been to the top in terms of earthly experience, and there's still so much more to see. Wait till you see it. And he himself is longing to see it. That's how he writes. He's so excited about what is to come. When we see him as he is, we saw that in Revelation chapter 7 with the kids. John got a glimpse, right? John even got a a better glimpse in his revelation. But he still didn't fully experience it, he still didn't see all there is to see. John says, We're going to see him as he is, with the veil removed. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. To cloud our vision. We will see him as he is. And that brothers and sisters. Should motivate our obedience. In the Christian life. That's what John does. In verse 3. Everyone. Who thus hopes in him. Purifies himself. As he is pure. Do we hope in him? Are we looking forward in faith. To his return. That should be what motivates us. To purify ourselves. As he is pure. This word pure. And and the word holy. Have the same root. To be pure. To be holy. As he is holy. I have a couple questions for us. About looking forward. I'm repeating myself. A little bit here. But. John got away with doing that, so I think I'll be okay. What does, two questions, what does an unchristian looking forward look like? What does an unchristian looking forward look like? Maybe it's shame, not being confident because we're looking to ourself and not to Christ, Maybe it's fear and anxiety over the future because we're more concerned with our own personal security. Maybe it's our financial security, our job security, our educational security, our relational security. Or maybe we have no hope for the future. Maybe we've become fatalistic and we've just given up hope. There's, just, there's nothing to live for, right? Right? It's just going to keep on going the way it's going. Or maybe we've become materialistic. I might as well live it up now. Might as well get all that I can while I can. Because we've given up hope for the future. Second question. How can we have confidence and hope in our looking forward? How can we have confidence and hope in our looking forward? First thing, it's what John told us to do. Abide in him. Remain in him. Continue in him. We read John 15 for our communion time last week. Jesus talking about us being the branches and he is the vine. We need to stay connected to him. We need to remain in him and abide in him. And He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can have confidence and hope in our looking forward if we abide in him. Second thing, remember your identity. Beloved children of the Father, called by him. Remember who you are. And third, purify yourselves. Be pure, be holy as he is holy. Because your hope is to be like him. Don't wait To be as much like him as you can. Do it now. Why would we wait when this is the promise? To be pure as he is pure. To walk with him. Why would we say, well, I'll put that off until another time. I'll put that off until the future. Exercise that forward-looking faith now. Well, John is going to launch into the second half of his argument with another stark contrast that he will emphasize throughout this section in verses 4 through 10. We're going to see the grounds for our victorious obedience and abiding perseverance. Looking back. The contrast here is between those who practice righteousness, as we saw in verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29, and those who purify themselves, chapter 3, verse 3, that was in the first section. And that's going to be contrasted here with those who practice sin and lawlessness. Verse 4: everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You might have heard this before, the Greek word for sin is actually an archery term. It's a term for missing the mark. You shoot an arrow, and however far your arrow is off of the bullseye, that is, that is sin, okay? Which is a helpful picture, and a helpful word, but if we look at our own hearts, and we look at our own justification, we might say, well, yeah, I still hit the target, right? Like, I was just off by a couple inches, so... I wasn't really that bad. John goes a step further here. He says, sin is lawlessness. It's not just missing the mark, which is a big deal. It is lawlessness. It is willfully breaking the law of God. I would encourage you, if you haven't memorized some of the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions, question number 14, What? is sin. Great answer, great answer that's helpful if you have friends who are asking you about sin. The answer is that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So that first half, any want of conformity unto, means that we don't do everything we're supposed to do. We don't conform fully to the law of God. We fall short in obeying him perfectly as we're called to do. The second half is transgression of the law of God. That we actively and willfully disobey God. We actively and willfully break his law and break his commandments. That is what John is saying here when he says sin is lawlessness. It's not just missing the mark. It's actively going against God and breaking his law and his commands. Now John points us to the first of two reasons that he's going to give us for Jesus' first coming. It says in verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus appeared, he came the first time to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He is pure, he cannot sin. He is righteous, and he is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, which we saw in the beginning of chapter 2. When John writes my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not only and not for ours only but also for the sins of the world and we talked about this picture of The yearly sacrifice on the day of atonement. This idea of propitiation of the lamb that was to be sacrificed. An unblemished lamb. But that lamb that was sacrificed every year was not sufficient. It was not a perfect sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the final payment. He is the high priest who climbed up on the altar so to speak, when he went to the cross. The priest himself became the sacrifice. Go read the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and 5 specifically, talking about Jesus being our high priest. And John then says that those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, who trust in him and abide in him, do not keep on sinning. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. They do not keep on sinning. In fact, if they do keep on sinning, he says, they have not seen him or known him. Two things that John has already reiterated, already said that is true for us as Christians. We have seen him and we know him. Now, verses six through ten are probably some of the most controversial verses in this whole letter, probably some of the most controversial verses in the whole New Testament. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over these verses throughout church history. Uh, John Stott and his commentary gives seven different interpretations that have been pretty common interpretations throughout ch- church history. There's a lot of things, you know, in the New Testament that maybe there's like three or four different opinions. Stop points to at least seven. So this is kind of of overwhelming. There's a lot going on here. But the question is, is John here promoting Christian perfectionism? Is John saying that it's possible to get to a point in our Christian lives where we no longer sin? Is he claiming that once we trust Jesus, sin is just completely done away with in our lives? Now historically, there has been some Christians and Christian movements that have taught this. And there are definitely ideas going on with John's opponents that he's confronting here and writing about. And there is a strong temptation to believe this, especially if you've seen God deliver you in your life from some particular sin. I remember in 2006 when we joined staff with crew, we were out in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado for our new staff training, and uh, we were, I had been wrestling with some certain things in my life and had really seen God kind of break me of some sins and and deliver me and I was having a conversation with an older staff member and I was like I was kind of I was I've been a Christian for like six years and I was pretty young and naive I was like 26 and I was like yeah you know like I think I can get to a point where like I don't really sin much anymore and and this guy you know is probably 10 or 15 years older than me maybe more and he was just like Yeah, you know, like, and just gave me some really wise counsel about how that wasn't true. And uh, boy, you know, the next few years of my life definitely were eye-opening in that regard that, you know what, I'm I'm not there yet. (laughs) I haven't arrived. I still have a long way to go. And here's the rub. It's that we should desire to be without sin. Right? We should desire to live lives that are holy and pure before the Lord. We should seek by the power of the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8.13, to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we will live. But, John has already suggested that we will sin. Even though his desire is that we will not, and we saw it just in chapter 2 verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the testimony of Christians throughout the ages is, we still struggle with sin. The testimony, no doubt, if, we sat, if I sat down and talked with you, you would say, and I would say, we still struggle with sin. That is why confession and repentance is such an important part of the daily walk of the Christian life. It's a reminder of who we are and to whom we belong. Which brings us to John's third imperative, the third command in this section in verse 7. Let no one deceive you. Little children, let no one deceive you. We saw this last week, that the deception is intentional and purposeful. Chapter 2, verse 26. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Who are the deceivers? John calls them the liars, the antichrists, the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. They are opposed to him. They were the ones who were claiming to be without sin. Which John addressed in chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So children, don't be deceived by the deceivers who are trying to deceive you. And don't deceive yourself by saying that you do not have sin. What does John say in the next verse in chapter 1? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are in Christ, we have a righteousness from him, an imputed righteousness. Theologians call it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from without, right? It's not something that is inherent in us. So John's exhortation here in verse 7 is true. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. We are righteous because of Christ. We are righteous because of his righteousness in us. And therefore we do righteousness. We practice righteousness. Righteousness. This is the glorious mystery and the glorious truth of the gospel. Luther called it the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That he made him, God made him Christ who knew no sin. To be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. Christ takes our sin and we get his Righteousness. So now we belong to God. We are his children. And we are not children of the devil. Which is what God, or John is going to go on to say in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And we'll look at this contrast between children of, the, of God and children of the devil in just a minute. Now John is going to point us to the second reason for Jesus' first coming. The first reason is that he appeared to take away sins in verse 5. Now John points us to the second reason in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan's claim on you and his power over you and his grip on your life was broken at the cross. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You no longer belong to him. So stop living like you are his child and start living out your true identity as a child of God. That is John's message to us here. A couple more application questions related to this section. What does an unchristian looking backward look like? We asked, what does an unchristian looking forward look like? Now, what does an unchristian looking backward look like? It's not trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross on your behalf. When Jesus stretched out his arms and died and said, it is finished, he meant it, it is finished finished his work his defeat of death his defeat of satan and sin is finished he paid for all of your sins with his precious blood past present and future when he died on the cross and he redeemed you from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin next question how can we experience the Victorious obedience and abiding perseverance. By walking in our new identity as children of God. In the beginning I asked, what if the centering point of looking back and looking forward is not us or our life experiences? What if our centering point for looking back and looking forward is something outside of us? One centering point for John, as we've been looking at the structure of the message, was Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Another centering point for John, something that he refers to six times in this passage, is the fact that we are children of God and that we have been born of God. So the new birth is the centering point from which we look back and we will look forward. It's not... Just our entire life, as helpful as that may be, to look at our entire life. The new birth is the true centering point with which we can look back on our life and look forward. We see this in verse 9. John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's seed abides in us and we have been born of him that is how we don't make a practice of sinning or keep on sinning which is a helpful translation these these words for for doing literally doing sin or and doing righteousness this keep on sinning it's just in the present tense but it it means to to habitually live a life of sin it's saying if you are a christian if you belong to christ you cannot continue to habitually live a life of sin. John reaffirms the reality of the new birth in verse 10 with another one of his stark contrasts. By this it is evident who are the children who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how do we know who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil? John is simply repeating what he has already said in chapter 2 about those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. For John, there are only two categories. There are only two types of people. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. John Stott says, Our parentage is either divine or diabolical our parentage is either divine or diabolical that's not a very popular opinion in our world these days but it's true and again jesus said it himself go read john chapter 8 jesus told the jews that they weren't abraham's children because they weren't doing what abraham did which was looking forward in faith to Jesus they weren't abiding in him and trusting in him and Jesus calls them out for seeking to kill him simply because he told them what god wanted him to communicate to them Jesus told the jews that they were children of the devil then he says before abraham was i am his what i think is his greatest claim to deity and what do they do pick up stones to kill him right definitely not a popular opinion to today to say there's only two types of people in the world those who know jesus and, and trust him and are are born again and are children of, of god and those who aren't those who are children of the devil and who will go to hell if they don't repent and trust Jesus. Again, we're not making this stuff up, right? We're not not trying to just cause a stir and get people to hate us. But they hated Jesus and wanted to kill him because he told the truth from God. If we do the same thing, we shouldn't be surprised that that's the reaction of the world. And that's a lot of what John's trying to get us to see here, right? If we walk in the light, the darkness is going to rebel against that. And again, I, w- I want to help us here. It's n- I'm not saying like everyone who you know, doesn't know Jesus just hates you and wants, he- wants to kill you like the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But as we, as we talk with people about their sin, as we talk with people about the reality, we need to set these two categories before them very clearly. And not like, oh, we're just trying to make some idea up about hell so that God can punish people and we're just trying to be mean. No, this is what Jesus talked about. This is what John is talking about here. We need to to speak clearly with people about that reality. There are only two categories. How do we know, right? How do we know then who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Well, John applies the moral test here. Do we obey? And then the social test. Do we love our brother? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. This verse here is kind of a transition from the first half of the letter, God is light, to the second half of the letter, God is love. We're gonna be seeing that for the next six weeks. Closing questions for us here. Have you been born of God? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to live forever, you must be born again. If you are a Christian, is you're looking back in confidence at Jesus' first coming and you're looking forward in hope of his second coming firmly grounded in the reality of the new birth and your identity as the child of God? Let me ask that again. It's kind of a kind of a mouthful, and it's, it's summarized on the front of your worship guide there with a quote from John Stott, but you can look at that in, later. If you're a Christian, is you're looking back in confidence at Jesus' first coming, and you're looking forward in the hope of his second coming, firmly grounded in the reality of the new birth and your identity as a child of God. As we reflect on that question today on this Palm Sunday, on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and as we imagine ourselves in the crowd, we need to ask, is my response to Jesus, Hosanna, God save me, God help me, or is it crucify him? Our answer to this question, I think, helps to show whose child we are. As we saw last week in John, 1 John 2.23, John said, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let us confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and live out our identity and our calling as children of God, while we look back in confidence and look forward in hope to our Savior's return. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot here uh, in these verses. There is a lot to encourage us. There is a lot to challenge us. There is a lot to remind us of who we are in Christ, of what. Christ has done for us on the cross, taking our place, imputing to us his righteousness for those who trust in him, who believe in him, who turn to him in faith. God, may that be true of everyone here. May we be those who say we are sons and daughters of God because of Jesus, because of his perfect life and his perfect death in our place the great high priest who climbed up on the altar and became the sacrifice for sin. And may we, God, go out and live lives that are pleasing to you, lives of obedience, lives of righteousness in this world. May it be clear to the world that we are followers of Christ. God, may you give us opportunities to witness to those around us of what it means to be a child of God, God, may you give us boldness in the face of opposition. May you give us boldness to declare to people that there are only two categories. That we would speak to people, that we would plead with people to be reconciled to you through Christ. To turn from their sins and to turn to you so that they may have hope for the future. That they may have hope of eternal life that comes from Christ alone. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for your love that we have been called children of God. May we live it. May we believe it. May we love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.